microphone. Uh, can everyone hear? Okay. I think we'll start. I have these little notes here. I was going to type them up, but um, Sister Helen and I got stuck in traffic, and uh, I never like typing anyway. So, well, my name is Jackson Taylor, and it is a privilege and an honor to welcome you all this evening to the 25th annual Prison Writing Awards Ceremony here at Penn. <laughs> I'm again privileged in that I can welcome you in two capacities. I'm the assistant director of the writing programs here at the New School, and I also direct the prison writing program at Penn. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the New School because they've been incredibly supportive of the prison program, and they've made this wonderful auditorium available to us. And I'd like to thank the people who helped with the publicity, and my boss, Robert Polito, who's director of the program, who I've never had a better boss. Um, now, before I go any further, just let me thank each and every one of you for coming out tonight, uh, especially since it is so cold. And we are taping this event, and the tapes will be sent to individual prisoners as well as to prison libraries, and um, copies are available for the media and that sort of thing as well. So if it seems like we're going a little fast sometimes tonight, that's because of this taping going on. So without any further ado, I would like to introduce somebody, and he is a man who for many, many, many years has been a tireless good friend to Penn, and he is Penn's legal counsel, Leon Friedman. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Sister Helen to you today. Uh, Sister Helen is my client, she's my friend, she's my spiritual advisor, and she is a person, a devoted and dedicated person working for a very important cause. I first learned about Sister Helen when her book came out, and I knew it was a very important book. And then uh, sometime later, I saw her on a television program on the death penalty, and some reporter had asked her, how can you go into Angola prison and deal with these terrible, awful people who have done these horrible, unspeakable crimes? And little sister Helen looked up at that person and a very strong voice said, a man is more than the worst thing he has ever done. And I mean, that, a lot of meaning in that, uh, in that statement and uh, about a week later, uh, Gloria Loomis called me up and asked if I would help uh, negotiate the movie contract on uh, Dead Man Walking, and I was delighted to do it. I think I'm allowed to tell one story. We were negotiating with uh, uh, the producer, and we wanted to put some restrictions in the contract, and uh, I had suggested some language that the Sister Helen character in the movie will not be depicted as violating her religious vows. And the people from uh, uh, Working Title called me up and said, uh, we're having a little trouble with that phrase. Could you tell us exactly what you mean by not violating her religious vows? Could you spell it out in a little greater detail? So of course, we did spell it out in a little greater detail, although Tim Robbins was uh, devoted to the, uh, uh, to the uh, movie. And of course, uh, we all know what happened. Uh, this very important movie came out, uh, the book, went back on the bestseller list, was on the top of the bestseller list for 31 weeks. 
It has been published in, new, in eight different languages. Uh, the movie has gone around the world. Uh, I just saw a review in Malaysia. The movie just opened up in Malaysia to spectacular uh, uh, reviews out there. Uh, when the movie came out, there was a review in the New Yorker uh, of the movie. The person went back and read the book and, and said, that Dead Man Walking is the most important writing about the death penalty since Albert Camus' Reflections on the Guillotine, which I thought was a pretty good comparison all in all. Uh, there's one other uh, comparison uh, I would like to make. Camus, of course, won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and Sister Helen has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize this year. When I call down to Sister Helen's office in New Orleans, I get this message. If you are calling to ask her to come to speak to you, Sister Helen is booked up till January 2000, in the year 2000. Uh, she's been an important worker. She's really opened up a lot of eyes to the inhumanity of the death penalty. She has uh, created a debate that wasn't here in the United States until the movie and the book uh, spread around, and it's, uh, we're really privileged uh, to have her here today. Let me just add one thing. We were at a press conference today, and, sis and uh, Dead Man Walking is going to be made into an opera by the San Francisco Opera, and uh, Terrence McNally is writing the, uh, 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 the um, uh, libretto, and Jake, uh, uh, Jake Hedgie is writing the, uh, uh, the, the, the um, a score, and both of them said that when they were, they were overwhelmed by the book and they heard the music when they read the book. So I think uh, we're really, uh, uh, really privileged to have Sister Helen here uh, to introduce the program tonight. Sister Helen Frazier. Really great to be among writers. I, I, uh, would you raise your hand? How many people in here are writers? Okay, great. And of course, the prison project to help people in prison to write. I, I thought I, I would just like to share with you a little bit about my experience of, of writing the book Dead Man Walking and, and then to just finish by just talking about the importance of helping people in prison find their voice and why we need to hear their stories. Um, I was not a writer. Uh, I majored in English in college and I liked writing, but um, I'm a speaker and a storyteller before I'm a writer. And uh, then I got involved with people and started having all these accompanying people to execution, and I'm with the murder victims' families, and I'm with the, the, the guards in the prison that are pulling me aside and saying, I really don't want to be doing this. They were part of the strap-down team involved in executing people, and I was having all of these experiences, uh, watching people die in the electric chair. And when you come out of experiences like that, you either get paralyzed or you get galvanized, which may be 
another name for the dynamic of resurrection in the Christian mystery. Um, well, I got galvanized, and I knew I was one of those witnesses, uh, and that it was my job to speak. Coming out of the execution of Patrick Sonier on April the 5th, I'll always remember this, 1984, I remember it was just as clear inside of me just saying, if the people really knew what was going on here, they would reject this, and I'm a witness, and my job is to speak. Well, the first speaking, and which I still do a lot of, is going across the country and giving talks to groups of people. <clears throat> Before the movie, it was 75 people, 73 of whom were already against the death penalty and were coming for moral support. Now, like just in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, St. Paul, we packed people, 1,500 people, into this, to this uh, place last night. And the audiences are packed. They're packed. And not all of them coming are against the death penalty, but they're curious. And the movie has opened up reflection. So speaking was the first thing I did. The smallest audience, anybody who would hear me speak, I would go. My smallest audience was in St. Christopher Nursing Home after lunch in New Orleans. Three people showed up. Two of them were nodding off while I was talking. But one lady was listening to me, and I was talking to her. And then, of course, you start writing because, like letters to the editor, then the next thing I know is, like, I went, I had this experience of going to pray with Lloyd LeBlanc, whose son had been murdered, his son David, had been murdered, and we went into this little chapel in St. Martinville, Louisiana, to pray together. And being in the presence of this man and hearing him and, and having his soul revealed that he, he was not vengeful, that he, he prayed for everybody. He prayed for his son. He prayed for the people who had killed his son and their family. I came back, and I went, I have to write this up. I have to write it. And I came home and I wrote it. Now, all these years, for a long time since I've been a sister, I've kept a spiritual journal. You know, it's not like a diary where you log in, I had lunch with. It, it, it's anything. It's, it's quotes from things I like or just how I'm feeling or just anything. It's from prayer. It's from anything. Uh, and I... I, but, but I've pretty consistently been keeping this journal. Um, and so when I sat down to write this article, I, as I was later told, you don't know this when you start writing, but I had a natural voice. I had a voice in writing. I would just write, this is what happened to me. This is what I thought. This is what I saw. And so the article was published. Then people are saying, you ought to write a book. You ought to write a book. And I'm thinking, I'm not writing a book. We already got books out there on the death penalty. I didn't know about the power of a book, a personal memoir where you're going to bring people through experiences. All I could think of was, well, the people who are for the death penalty, they're going to read the Rush Limbaugh books, and the people against it are going to read the Amnesty International books or, or, uh, or, or this, you know, or the, the prison writing thing. They'll read those. Already sympathetic people. So anyway... I resisted the idea of writing a book, really. And, uh, and I couldn't see myself stopping and going to a cave for a year to go write a book. Because when you're writing, it doesn't seem like you're doing very much. 
I mean, it's a silent process. All he's just putting out these little words like rows of corn out in the field there. And it's just you and God and just quiet. And it just, just seems like you're not doing very much. As I was writing Dead Man Walking, I read all these books about the writing process and writers. And one guy, he was a writer, you know, and when he'd hear his wife coming home, he'd get out the vacuum cleaner and start vacuuming like, I'm doing something, okay? I'm doing something. <laughs> and of course, you don't know you're a writer. You don't know you can do these things. And so, a book. But then, you know, what happens is you start getting involved in a community of people who know people. And so I knew Bill, uh, Jason DeParle, who now works for the New York Times. He knew Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben, I sent him my articles and stuff I wrote, and he said, look, I'll get you. I'll introduce you to my agent. So he introduces me to Gloria Loomis, and I'm going, she's going to be too busy. She's not going to be. A Boy, lo and behold, every time I opened a door, whoosh, it was like, there they were. So here I have this letter from Gloria Loomis. I would love to be your agent. Watkins Loomis. I don't know anything about Watkins Loomis. I don't know anything about an agent. And so she tells me, you write a table of contents proposed. You may depart from it. A proposal, show the arc of the essay, where you're going to go with the book, and three chapters. They don't have to be in sequence. Just to show, I have to be able to show a publisher you can write, because I never had anything, no, no book ever published. Well, that took me about nine months to do because I'm doing all these talks and we organizing in Louisiana and we trying to get spiritual advisors for death row inmates. I mean, you're just busy doing stuff. Lo and behold, I get this letter. And uh, we just had a long march from death row in, uh, in Florida to the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta. I was just coming home after this two weeks on the road. Here's a letter from this guy at this place called Random House, this guy by the name of Jason Epstein, whom I don't know from a hole in the wall. Later, a, a writer friend of mine said, Helen, Helen, I know writers who would kneel on crushed glass for a week to get a telephone call from Jason Epstein. So all this is unfolding like a rose. And I mean, it was like, uh, so here this guy, I get this letter. He says, you look, the proposal for your book looks interesting. Come up to New York. I'd like to see and talk to you about this book. Fly up to New York with a friend of mine who was also going to get, we coming from New Orleans up to New York to go see our editors about our books, right? And Liz Scott, this friend, she was a comedy writer. She had a character, Modine Gunch, and the title of her book was Never Heave Your Bosom in a Front Hook Bra. <laughs> and we were on the plane both talking about our books. And uh, I'm talking about the death penalty, and she's talking about heaving your bosom in a front hook bra. And we were quite a pair. So we land in New York, babes in the woods, babes in the woods. And here I have my appointment to go see this man, Jason Epstein, at 11 o'clock on the 11th floor. I think Random House rents the 11th floor of the building. You know, I didn't know. I didn't even see the sign on the outside. I had no idea all oh, Random House and who this man was. Go in there, talk to him. He had one of the best discussions on the death penalty I ever had with anybody. See a passion in him. And, you know, I think a lot of Goethe, and, and what he said is, if you, we, if you are deeply uh, committed and unswerving in your commitment to a cause that is right and just, resources will find their way to you and providence will begin to work for you. So I'm talking to this man, Jason Epstein, and we're having this good discussion about the death penalty. And I thought, sure, he'd say, well, sister, thank you. 
I mean, here's a Jewish guy who had never been within 400 yards of a Catholic nun in his life. And we are talking about the death penalty. And I saw, I thought, he'd say, well, sister, thank you. We'll get back to you. About 20 minutes into the discussion, he said, I'll get you a contract. We're going to do this book. I go, I guess I'm going to do this book. I mean, I went back to New Orleans. Here was the mandate. And only with that clear mandate did I sit down to write and found out when I wrote of, of what a, sometimes the words would come out and they looked terrible. They were wooden, and I felt like I'm doing the breaststroke through peanut butter to get the words out. Other times the words sang, and, and like your boat hits a current and you just start going and you follow, you follow it. All that, and then I began to learn to trust that writing process, that sometimes your boat was going to sail, and sometimes your boat was going to sit there, and waiting was part of it too, and going to sleep on the words, and waking up the next morning. And the relationship between the unconscious and the consciousness in writing was an important thing too. And the words began to form, and the, I always remember being surprised, like, oh, I guess I'm at the end of a chapter here. Close a chapter, begin the next one, telling the story. I instinctively wrote the book in, in first person, present tense, because I had a sense that I wanted to take my readers with me to everything that happened to me, it would happen to them. As I would learn, they would learn in the unfolding of the story. So I worked on it a year. One year later, I'm back in New York, sitting in Jason Epstein's office, and it's, I have the rough draft. He didn't want to see it till I had it all together. And he was such a great editor. Because he said, Helen, look. He said, first of all, you don't tell about the crime till way back in the book. Your readers are not going to be with you. If they don't know what this guy did that you go and see on death row, if they don't know what he did with, within the first 10 pages of this book, they're not going to read this book. And then here you are, a nun. You go and visit in this guy on death row, woman, man thing. They're not going to believe this stuff of this nun celibacy stuff. They're going to suspect something's kinky going on here between you and a death row inmate. You be very transparent about the nature of your relationship with this man. And then he said, look, you put all your important information down in the footnotes. He said, the art of good writing is to pull up the facts and things you want people to know about the death penalty into the drama, into the story. They're going to keep reading for story. And so you weave that in. So by the time they get to the end of this book, they will know every important thing you want them to know about the death penalty, and they will have learned it painlessly. And so I did everything he told me to do. I mean, it was like everything. I would go, yeah, right, yeah, right. And then he just taught me about the writing itself. He'd say... Uh, never use a lot of adjectives, you know, strong with sub nouns and verbs, a la Hemingway kind of thing. He says, if you've got to plunk a lot of adjectives on there to, to describe what you're seeing, just use really, and, and simple, simple, simple. And don't say too many things. Like I described going into the death house, and I said I had a tight band in my stomach, and the, the tips of my fingertips were cold. He said, choose... Tight band in stomach or fingertips cold? Don't say both. <laughs> he says it's like when you're walking along and if a little rock falls on your head, okay, you feel that. But if you walk and rocks are always falling on your head, after a while you don't feel them. You say one thing, you pick one graphic detail that you want to, and, and so he, he was just a, he was a hands-on wonderful editor who's now a really good friend. And he helped me immensely. 
And then one of the ways he helped me the most was he said, these people have done terrible crimes and these families are suffering a lot. And you are showing compassion to these people who have done these crimes. On every page of this book, you have to walk a tightrope. Because when you're visiting with the death row inmate, where the state is now about to imitate the violence and to do to him what he did to his victim, and their family's going through this too, there is the victim standing there in the background and all of their sufferings, and you are caught in the tension between these two things, and every page of your book has to hold that tension. If you collapse it on either end, the book will fail, and the people will sense it, and they're not going to want to read it. And you have to be honest. Tell about your mistakes. Tell about the things you did wrong. Like I talk about delaying, not going to see the victim's families, because uh, I was confused. I didn't know how to handle them. And Jason, who becomes spiritual advisor at this point, too, says, well, it was cowardice, too, wasn't it? You were scared, weren't you? I go, yeah, yeah, I was. He said, put that in. Just say, I was scared. I stayed away from them because I was scared and I didn't know how to handle it. And it was a big mistake. Because people trust honesty. And you're right in your journey. They don't expect you to be a saint. They don't expect you to get it all right. Don't be afraid to be transparent in your writing, and share your mistakes as well as the things you do that are right. And so I went back, and for another year, I wrote Dead Man Walking. I was two years in the cave. Uh, but it was a time that was filled. It was a time that was uh, where you realize that in the writing of words, all I knew to do, I didn't have any idea of what impact it would have, or that it would be a movie, or that it would be an opera, there's something from the Eastern religions that says, never, from the uh, Bhagavad Gita, never seek the fruit of your actions. Just simply to do your actions with integrity, and then you let the consequences fall where they will. And so all I had before me in this mission was, write a good book. Write an honest book. Keep your voice clear. Keep it simple. Keep it transparent. Uh, and then with it, and I give great credit to Jason. I believe the deepest things we do, uh, we do, they are solitary acts, but they always involve community. They always involve other people. So in the second year, I also was documenting everything in Dead Man Walk and all the statistics I was quoting, everything about race and the death, death penalty, poverty and the death penalty, all the. And so naturally, it brought me into collaboration with lawyers and sociologists people who knew this information. And I remember what a joy it was to write at the beginning of the book thanking all the people who had been part of the community of writing Dead Man Walking. And I always give them credit. I always say, this person helped me, that person helped me. I, I did it, but I did it with community. I did it with help. And, and of course, that the word we has to be one of the most precious words in the English language, that we did this. And I played a part, but we did this. And so this prison writing project is so important. Do you know we got 1.6 million people in prison now? And it's, I'm afraid we're on a trajectory where we're going to keep doing this. The budget now in California, three years ago, it was always that the education budget was greater than the prison budget. 
and now the prison budget is greater than the education budget. And we, we have a small country of people in prison. This is, this is our social welfare program. This is what we're doing with poor people and people who have problems. 80% of people who are in prison are high school dropouts. 90% of people who are on death row were abused as children. This is what we're doing with our citizens. We are throwing them away. The prison writing project it comes at it from an entirely different perspective from the other side that says these are human beings who have dignity and who have worth. And to help people to find their voice and to give expression to their voice, which only they have, is to me one of the most beautiful things that we can do. It's behind all teaching. It's behind getting involved with people. And the transformation of human beings into a vocal, articulate, reflective human being, I think, is one of the most beautiful works of creation. I cannot personally think of anything more exciting than helping a human being who has no voice, who has, who's dull and doesn't know how to relate, doesn't know how to read, doesn't, and to see them springing up like a little flower out of the asphalt, to see them, the growth and the, the development and sensitivity into to interiority, into soul, into personhood. And writing, I guess that's why I keep writing a journal, because writing brings our soul right out there. It helps us even to look at ourselves. And so I can't, I'm so happy to be here tonight. I am really so happy to be part of this and to give my support to this project and to talk about the importance of writing because writing means you're finding a voice and you're giving a voice to something that only you can see in the unique way that each of us has and and in the unique personhood that we have. And we're like a huge mosaic. And we need all the little cracks of blue and all the little slivers of green and all the little dots of yellow, uh, which each individual person is. And the human voice, what is more precious than the human voice to give expression to our souls, to our dreams, to our hopes, to our stories? There's a great need for stories, real stories of people, especially stories where we honestly share our journeys, our swimming toward the light, our growing up through the asphalt, going toward deep humanness, solidarity, the deep causes, human rights, love, care, things that really finally matter. So thank you for having me here tonight. I'll be glad to be sharing with all of you afterwards in the occasion we'll have together to share. And, uh, and I hope that you will give your support to this project. Uh, uh, those that have financial resources, things like this always need money. Here we were launching the opera today at the Chase Manhattan Bank, right? They underwriting this, okay? And... Uh, I always think of um, Joseph Campbell. You remember when he did that whole thing on the power of myth and his definition of money is congealed energy. 
And uh, the sharing of those resources for projects like this are really important too, and I encourage you to be, to be generous in doing that. Thank you. so much, Sister Helen Prejean. Um, it's uh, a great honor to have you with us tonight. I'm B.B. Wine. I'm chair of the prison writing program. And I've been reading fiction in the prison writing contest for nine years. Um, you have in your hand a little booklet with a sampling of prize-winning work from past years and from this year's contest. And if you take it home and read it at your leisure, you'll find a gripping short story about life and death in an AIDS storm, a colorful memoir about a woman coming of age in rural Puerto Rico, a poem about listening to Mozart, and other works on various subjects. You may notice that some themes appear more often in prison writing than, say, in your average creative writing class. The two that stand out in my mind are issues of honor, loyalty, and betrayal, and the powerful sense of hope that emerges when racism is overcome, even in a very small way. But for the most part, men and women in prison write about the same things other writers do. They write works of pure imagination, personal narratives, stories and poems and essays about their parents, siblings, children, about people who have touched their lives and people who have indelibly bruised them. But there's one subject only those who have been incarcerated can tell us about, life behind bars. Tonight, we invite you inside the walls of prisons in seven states from Maine to California. We start in Maine with a short story from this year's contest, Lawn Sale of Truth by Scott A. Antworth. Our reader, one of the most acclaimed fiction writers of this decade, National Book Award winner, Norman Rush. No one in the rec yard that day had expected to see Andy St. Stephen, but there he was, walking the dog run, looking very much alone and impossibly outgunned. The dog run, a slim stretch nestled into the afternoon shadows of the wall, cyclone fenced and razor wired. It's a patch well out of the reach of the rest of the cons, beyond a stretch of grass we can't step on, itself beyond the rec yard fence. It's where the hacks let the segregation inmates, those not doing disciplinary time, out for their hour of daylight. Our schedules are very different, so we see them very little. In the dog run, Andy was a solitary figure drifting between the green of the grass and the gray of the wall. He kept his hands loosely locked behind his back and paced with his chin down, 
occasionally looking skyward with a sideways glance, as if blessed by some revelation. On the other side of the fence, a pair of flabby screws sat on upended milk crates, sweating and watching him with disinterest. Stephen was 27 days into his investigation, and this afternoon was the first time any of us had caught sight of him. He's being investigated for conspiracy, but just what he was supposed to have been conspiring about, no one knows. One morning, he got to talking about Tom Money, and he was in the hole by noon. My house, steel bars and walls, dull blue, waxed concrete floor, hand polished to a high sheen. I stuck my head in the sink and splashed water on my face. Behind me on the corridor, cons plodded by, their cat calls and muffled words in a regular drone. It was a familiar parade, repeated six times a day, back and forth, married to the hour. I had my face in a towel when tunes leaned in my door and tossed a deck of smokes onto my table. Did you see today's paper? I called after him. No. There is a letter about St. Stephen in there. Donaldson wrote it. That makes five letters from inside the walls, and I ain't seen a single one from the street. Does that surprise you, he said. No, I said a little quickly. Take her easy, painter, he smiled, wandering off. Painter, it's what the cons call me. It's what I do. Portraits, mostly, but I've done just about everything the guys around here dream up. Most everyone wants something. They send them out to family or girlfriends or prop them up in their cells to try and breathe in some life. I'd once painted a window onto the wall of my cage. I put in a deep azure sky, cirrus-wisped and green rolling hills that flowed down from the horizon to trees flecked with apple blossoms, rimming a field, rippling in the breeze, and rioting with windflowers. A soft, curvy blonde stood in the foreground, hip-deep in the grass. The white gauze of her dress and the straw of her hair, windblown. I then painted bars on my window for a kick. The hacks didn't appreciate my defacing state property, and I pulled 20 days in the hole. I'm a jailhouse painter, not a writer. I've kept reminding myself of this distinction when, in recent days, St. Stephen's predicament gnawed at me throughout odd hours, and the story kept racing in my mind, as if all I had to do was sit and let it spill out across my notebook in a surge. Fiction didn't seem so difficult, though I'd quickly concede that there were nuances and subtle techniques, like the touch of a hummingbird that had almost escaped my notice. My fiction workshop has been the long prison nights and the books that have filled them. Katie J., my wife, would point to my letters in our phone calls or visits and implore, why don't you ever talk like that to me? As if there were a connection between the words that seeped out across the pages of my letters, the confessions, sentiments, the rambling discourses that so weighted down the envelopes, and their polar opposite, the inarticulate and often unresponsive man she married. So... I'm a painter with pretensions, a fact hauntingly clear as I'd sit hunched at my table staring at the blank steel canvas of my wall. St. Stephen was in that wall somewhere, in the grooves and streaks of the brush-stroked paint. They struck him down for daring to speak an unspeakable truth that contradicted what was official and accepted. 
There was a story in that dichotomy. Of this I was sure, and no amount of pensive glaring could diminish its existence within me. In our most recent visit, a couple days before I began writing it, I told Katie of my intention to do St. Stephen's story as fiction. She seemed confused, as if after eight years of marriage, she'd suddenly realized I had 12 fingers. When did you start writing? I haven't, I confessed. I'm thinking about it. Her hands, clasped in mine across the table, went limp, as though she'd forgotten them. She was trying to assess this bit of news, something I'd felt was so casual. You'll get in trouble. It's fiction. You'll end up just like he did. I'm not using any names or places. It's, it's fiction. Oh, I don't know, Zach, she muttered, shaking her head, her hands pulling free from mine. You've been doing so good lately. How long how long's it been since your last write-up? I'm overdue, I quipped. And it didn't look as if she appreciated it. I followed her hands across the table and placed mine over hers. You're worrying over nothing, really. Am I, she asked, her brows going up. Look what happened to St. Stephen. The prison locked him up like that for talking about this Tom money in here. And you want to write about it and send that out? I watched her, hoping her voice wouldn't rise any higher. It'll be fiction, honey. I can do that. I won't even place it in this state. Yeah, and the names have been changed to protect the innocent, Zach. Think about what you're saying. You've only got a couple of years left. What, why make waves now? The truth would only get you into trouble. Sitting there in the visiting room with six calendars behind me, I almost laughed. Suddenly, I didn't know why I'd even brought the subject up. Look, if it means that much to you, I won't do it. Really? What, I'm going to lie to you? You're right. It's not worth it. I laid the pen to one side, studied the half-finished page seven, and crossed my cell to the bars of my front wall. Two and a half steps. It was late, and the block was stone silent. How quiet a cell block full of people could be at midnight. Pushed these thoughts from my mind. I had to concentrate. I was stuck on page seven. Katie would never understand, and as she wasn't in the cell with me to object, I felt no need to explain. I just would be, wouldn't be fool enough to broach the subjects of writing, St. Stephen or Tom Money again. We've long since learned to be careful with topics. It keeps us sane. I can't say that we lie to each other so much as we practice, practice selective disclosure. I don't tell her the things that make her worry. I don't tell her those things. I sit staring at the walls of my house, my back to the bars, thinking of everything or too often of nothing, yet still seething with unfocused rage. And she doesn't tell me about the men who've helped to chase away her loneliness, and I don't ask. After six years with these walls between us, we know that what is not said is at least as important as what is. Back at my table, I crossed my arms over my chest and stared down at page seven. A dozen lines of my tight, virtually illegible script traced back and forth across the page and halted like a crash before the end of the second paragraph. I'd killed Tom Money off, or rather the character I called Jerry Polk. They both died in remarkably similar ways. If they hadn't, there didn't seem to be any point in writing the story. It stopped so suddenly, that compact chicken crawl, scrawl. The narrative had just spilled out right up until that long, ghastly silence after the money character stopped screaming. Maybe I'd done it badly. 
I'd left no room for a transition from money's screams of horror heard by St. Stephen to his decision to remain as impassive as everyone else. No, I decided his four-year silence had not been a conscious decision. Stoicism is the norm. The decision would come later in the form of speaking out, four years after the fact, in front of a room full of people, an outsider, lawyer, advocate, and two hacks with their ears pricking. That decision, made when money was long in Boot Hill, dead, was the transition. I just didn't know how to get there. I paced my cell, again, my hands moving like paddle wheels ahead of me, trying to sweep the words toward me from the smoke-veiled air. When I caught myself muttering more than quietly, I stopped in my tracks and clamped my mouth shut. I had men on either side of me, and they didn't need to suspect me of losing my mind. I peeled the unfinished page from the pad and tried to glean from its rambling lines what was salvageable, and then I crumpled it. I'd begun writing prematurely. Somewhere along the line, I'd lost the central axis of my story. Four years of silence had rendered me speechless. I no longer knew if I was writing of Tom Money or Andy St. Stephen. I couldn't even say if St. Stephen in that damn conference room had ascended to nobility or plunged into foolishness. And no one seemed to care. What had followed St. Stephen's exhortation was a silence as vast as the one in the wake of Money's so-called suicide. There was the story that no one felt the need to comment on or to protest. St. Stephen, by speaking of the facts, had been struck down by the authors of truth. Naturally, he had to be punished for his falsehoods as he sat in the hole. Letters from inside the walls told his story to an outside world that, in its apathy, called him a liar. I sank to my chair and thumbed languidly through the six surviving pages. I tidied them and slid the sheaf back to the wall. Perhaps I'd been living too closely with it. I'd once read that Annie Dillard had gotten herself the use of a small shack just so that she wouldn't have to live in the same room as her writing. I capped the pen, drummed it against the table's edge, then threw it at the pages. I've never read any Annie Dillard, and I'm no writer. Tom Money. I couldn't even recall clearly how he looked. He was a small guy, I remember that. And he was a feisty bastard. It had been his mouth that had gotten him slammed in the hole, and he'd put up a hell of a fight when they killed him there. I'd been in C-Block that night, close enough to hear the echoes of Tom Money's wails. Segregation, the hole, is one short flight up from C-Block, and it is inconceivable that anyone in that honeycomb of cells that night didn't know what was going on. When the, kids got to scream, when the kid got to screaming, it seemed to knife through the walls of my cage, trumpeting from the drain of my sink, peeling down the length of the corridor, rolling sharply over the bricks across the way. A con yelled for someone to shut up. Guys were trying to sleep. The whole thing was over inside of ten minutes, ebbing into moans we could no longer quite hear, and yet it seemed to last a night, as if... When it was over, we were poised on the brink of a dawn that never came. It was the damnedest silence I ever heard. Three hundred men packed in like meat in a slaughterhouse freezer, and yet the whole block was tomb silent. Someone farted. I don't know how many of us slept that night. 
I spent those long hours smoking in the shadows cast by my bars, falling in night-lit strips which gritted the floor, the walls, and my bunk. What had happened was common knowledge, and the cons talked about it freely, but not loudly, among themselves for days. Everyone knew which hack had done it, Steiner. 260 pounds of butt, ugly ex-Marine. He's a lieutenant now. I saw the lights of the ambulance when it came, an hour after that abysmal hush had begun. Its red rollers flickered pinkly on the bricks across from my house, through the windows down below. They didn't need to run their lights. I hear that money flatlined by the time they got to him, massive hemorrhaging and a fractured dome. He killed himself. That was the final truth, the results of the investigation. Tom Money had managed to beat himself to death. Steiner and the other hack in the hole that night had supplied those incontrovertible facts. Try as, they mo as we might, they said, or words to that effect, we couldn't keep inmate Money from injuring himself. He'd been at it for several minutes, and by the time we got there with restraints, he was unconscious. The medical examiner was not so flowery. I can't say it was suicide, is what he is believed to have said. I won't say it was homicide. Results inconclusive. Case closed. I had a dull headache. Across the table, back against the wall, the pages looked like a joke to me. They had sponged up my time and effort to little avail. I'd come to a dead end. I didn't even know why telling St. Stephen's story had been such a driving need for me. St. Stephen himself, should he ever know of my efforts, would probably just shake his head and walk off, a thin smile on his face, amused by me, a pretender being snake-fascinated by how he'd been strung up. Painter, he'd likely say, the truth only gets you in trouble. It's what I figured he'd say, but it was Katie's voice in my head, and it's just not worth it. Still, I had to hear myself saying the things that for so long had been abandoned. I just had to say it, and glaring at those half-dozen pages, I knew I'd failed. I'd told myself a secret. It didn't even work as fiction, I decided, sliding the pages towards me. I tapped their edge against the tabletop, getting them perfectly even. Fiction, in order to work, must at least caress a certain credibility, and men just don't die screaming in a void of deafening silence. Six pages before I ripped them again. Twenty-four. I called it 192 by the time I dropped them like confetti into my hopper. I watched the water soak them, bleed through them, turn their white to gray, and I leaned on the button, sending them down with one sucking roar. Later, sprawled across my bunk, unable to sleep, I could see the sole surviving scrap cemented to the porcelain above the waterline. Its edges and its few smeared words were just distinguishable, distinguishable against the glistening white in my nightlit cell. Thank you. Partner, a 1991 winner 
by Michael Saussier of Cottonport, Louisiana, will be read by Cornelius Eady. Cornelius Eady was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry in 1992 and teaches poetry at the New School MFA program. Please join me in welcoming Cornelius Eady. Cut partner. His eyes search among the hundreds of men crowding the fence for someone he's worked with before or someone whose work he knows who isn't afraid to catch his cut. You got a work partner this morning? Yeah. Where's your boy? Medical call out. Trying to get himself a duty static, huh? Yeah, the sellout. Go ask Holmes there. I hear his boy got blocked last night. Four inmates exit the tool shed, arms loaded with hose to chop clean a summer of dirt, weeds, and trees, dropped in a tangled heap on the roadside. His eyes rung along the stout and steel, trying to see the good ones. Freeman spits a long red stream, his signal. First five, pick him up. He races with the others along the road, a flurry of black and brown, sun-peeled white hands examine, choose, discard, choose another. This one's got a good long handle, but the head be swiveling. Handle here is done split. Better drop that one, Holmes. Hit it wrong against one of those palmettos, you'll be stuck out $8, sure. If it ain't my fault, shit, free man don't care. Figure nigger trying to get out of work. It'll cost you $8, homeboy, or 10 days on the rock. Believe that. In the seconds he has, he grabs the best two he can find and returns to the line. Cut partner looks worried, so he hands him his choice. Cut partner runs his thumb along the edge. Dull, he says, but not as bad as that thing I had yesterday. Bitch killed me. They take bites and slices at the earth, testing for sharpness, amount of energy that'll be required. Then he remembers, today is file day. Twice, twice a week, Sarge sends the file man around. Hours pass. Finally comes, lays a few deep strokes. With a heavy rasp, the weeds, grass, palmettos, and thin willow trees give easier, and it angers him. The small joys he has had to settle for. Throughout the long, burned-up day, he mutters, What a waste. What a goddamned. Judith Clark, 
wrote her 1993 prize-winning poem to Vladimir Mayakovsky at Bedford Prison in New York. Our reader, the distinguished novelist, Paul Marshall. Please welcome Paul Marshall. This is a poem with a footnote. And so I'm going to, rather arbitrarily, <clears throat> uh, change the footnote into an epigraph, because I think it will put the poem in uh, better context. The footnote reads, Vladimir Mayakovsky, 1893 to 1930, a Russian poet and dramatist, was considered the premier voice of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. But his relationship to the Soviet government grew more contentious. He died by his own hand at the age of 37. To Vladimir Mayakovsky. History has been unkind to you, Mayakovsky, making fools or lunatics of us who chased the rainbow blinded by its shimmering radiance, fading like dreams, disappearing into morning. Your life, a warning. Poets who would be prophets may lose their lyrics, their lives. History's stern judgments. He sold his soul to dictators, his craft to technocrats. He loved too much. He loved too little. He gave in. He gave up. Today, the new world you championed, the dreams I fought for, are consigned to history books written in black and white, bereft of poems. A middle school teacher in America wraps it up neatly to his pupils in one simple sentence. Communism was bad from start to finish, bad and it lost. A child stands, hip on, hands on hips, chin out in challenge. That's your opinion and too simple. My grandparents were communists. It was an idea, a dream. People tried, but they made mistakes. It's not so simple as good and bad. In the prison visiting room, the child looks her mother in the eye. She says, your intentions were good, but you went about them wrongly. And I, her mother, who grew up dancing to your rhythms and rhymes, Mayakovsky, then plunge from poetry to war, find my way back to you. Reading your rebellious lyrics, I contemplate your end, Mayakovsky caught in the iron jaws of history and your own intimate demons. This I know. Despite my failures and defeats, my sorry solitude, the burden of guilt and the death of dreams, despite the cold of a winter morning waking to cinder block walls and rows of barbed wire, robbed of every warm blanket of illusion. Still, I crave life, Mayakovsky. Child, poems, 
Dreams. May Day, 1993. <sighs> <laughs> A Cry Unheard by Paul Coomer is a 1998 nonfiction winner. Mr. Coomer writes now from Trenton, New Jersey, about a prison riot in Mecklenburg, Virginia. Reading A Cry Unheard, poet, fiction writer, and anthologist, Jack Agueros. Attention. Attention all prisoners, this is Paul Coomer. We have assumed control of this institution. We have hostages and are willing to die. Rather than submit to any further abuse, I will keep you informed of our progress. I gently laid the phone back onto its cradle and waited for the response. The date was August 3rd. 1984, the place, Virginia's Mecklenburg Correction Center, known as a bad prison, a place that no one wanted to be sent to, for you never left the burg, the same man you were when you entered. Now, after years of beatings, stabbings, and more than one, quote, suicide, it was all coming to a head with one phone call made over the prison's intercom. The phone rang. What's going on over there, Kuma? We have taken control of the building. I replied, who am I talking to? We'll see how long you keep it, punk. I slammed the phone down onto its cradle with enough force to crack it. Looking out through the control room's bulletproof window onto the unit's floor, I found a focal point for my anger. Withdrawing the 10-inch boning knife concealed in my trousers waistband, I stalked out. His name was Merritt, but he was called Roadrunner because of the way he'd run across the yard, his long skinny legs pumping like the cartoon character anytime there was a fight. Although he was always first to respond to call for help, he never moved into the struggle until there was no chance of him being hurt. Once a prisoner was subdued, he'd be quick to use his baton, often inflicting serious damage. His cowardice had made him a hated man. The tough prison turnkey now sat on the floor in a puddle of his own blood. He had struggled like a desperate man fighting for his life when the takeover had begun. For he knew if we succeeded, his life wouldn't be worth much in the hands of men who had every reason to hate him. His eyes widened in fear when he saw the knife in my hand. Please, man, don't hurt me. He held his hands out pleadingly. I'm not going to bother you anymore. You should have thought about that when you were doing all of that weak shit, I screamed. You put me here, punk. 
God, no. He begged as I took a step closer, the knife in my hand flashing silver death in the harsh fluorescent lights. I took a step nearer, my stomach tightening with a cold hunger for revenge. Roadrunner would be the focal point for the four years of pain and suffering I had endured since arriving at Mecklenburg. Suddenly, from the corner of my eye, I saw the flash from a knife's blade. I reacted instinctively, slammed the man holding it against the wall, pinning him there. No, let me kill him, the knife wheeled his eyes, glared with hatred. He's done more to me than he has to you. The man was right, and I almost released my grip on his arm. But looking over his shoulder, I noticed a group of prisoners watching intently. Hold on a minute, Tree. I paused to nod my head in the direction of the inmates. Do you want to die for this piece of scum? I pointed at Roadrunner with the point of my blade. You're right, Tree agreed, then turned and slowly walked away. Back in the control booth, I looked through the window at my fellow prisoners and the nine guards we held as hostages. I realized that I was responsible for all that happened. It was a sobering thought, knowing that more than one life was on the line, and I did not like being in this position at all. I had always been a loner. Good or bad, whatever I suffered happened to me alone. But now, what happened here would follow all of us, prisoner as well as guard, for the rest of our lives. Crow, a small prisoner, rushed into the control booth. Hey, Kuma, you gotta come to C-Block, they're gonna rape Clara. Alice Clara was a cook who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. We'd all agreed that she wasn't to be hurt. Now she lay on her stomach on a prison bunk, nude and defenseless, her eyes open, wide in terror. What's going on here, Clara? I asked, helping her to her feet and wrapping a sheet around her. We want some pussy. A gruff voice said behind me. Swiveling to face the speaker, I met the steel-eyed gaze of Speedy. We all agreed this woman wasn't to be touched. I moved so that I faced him and the group who stood at the cell's door. We decided we don't like that agreement. He glared at me defiantly. This was much more than just an argument. If I failed this test, no one would listen to me. I had no choice. I would fight and fight hard, taking a step closer to Speedy. Putting him between me and the four who stood at the door, I planned my assault. I'd get Speedy first, then slam him back into his comrades. Experience had taught me that if you take, <clears throat> excuse me, that if you take out the leader first, the others are slow to react. Easing my hand closer to the knife concealed in my waistband, I moved close enough to see the apprehension in Speedy's eyes turn to uncertainty. You're not touching this woman. I said, slipping my hand beneath my shirt to the waiting blade. I could almost hear the quickening beat of Speedy's heart. I focused on the large vein on his neck, for I knew that when a man is faced with danger, the large vein in his neck will swell with blood just before he attacks. I watched that vein in Speedy's neck, intending to rip it out of his throat, given the slightest provocation. A long minute passed. Sensing that I might get out of this without trouble, I decided to press the issue. Man, even if by some chance, 
you beat me. If you touch that woman, every man involved in this will be charged with rape. And you can bet that there will be those who won't like picking up more time for rape. I was withdrawing the knife when I saw a shadow moving in the doorway. What's going on here, bro? A familiar voice called out. Ain't nothing I can't handle, Rico. I said, my eyes never leaving Speedy's throat. Speedy and his boys there, I nodded toward the door, have decided that they don't agree with our decision not to touch this woman. What boys? Rico asked. The doorway was empty. The four men had disappeared. <laughs> Realizing he could not win, Speedy backed toward the door, turned and disappeared into the crowd that had gathered in the hallway. As he moved away, I caught a reflection in the mirror above the cell sink. A pair of eyes that had haunted my worst nightmare since I was a child. I was caught by their dead, impassive glare and stood staring at them as if mesmerized. I'd first seen the eyes as a boy growing up in the hills of southwest Virginia. It all began when my brother John bought a new 22 rifle and asked me to adjust its telescopic sights for him. I'd come home after school and grabbing the rifle rushed into the woods to work on it. A small red dot I traced on a piece of paper for a target had all but disappeared under a hail of 22 bullets. And the sights were zeroed in when I got the eerie sensation of being watched. Knowing there were mountain lions and bobcats lurking in those woods, I quickly reloaded the rifle and began looking around. It wasn't until I raised my eyes to the limb of an old dead oak that I located the watcher. A huge buzzard stared down at me, so close that I could see the bits of flesh clinging to his beak. The October sun reflected off the Carrionita's black feathers in an incandescent flash of color, giving him almost a surreal appearance. But it was his eyes glinting darkly that held my attention. They stared at me with a dead, impertinent glint that infuriated me. Raising the rifle to my shoulder, I shot the creature and then ran over to his flopping carcass to empty the rifle into the eyes that had dared to look at me so disdainfully. That night the dreams began. The dreams were of eyes, cold, dead orbs that glared out at me from the face of every monster that chased me. Now more than 20 years later, it was the same eyes staring back at me in the mirror, only they weren't attached to some monster in my nightmares. They were my eyes. Kuma, hey man, are you okay? Rico's voice pulled me out of the trance. What's wrong? I'm okay, Rico, I said without explanation. Man, we gotta talk to Speedy. We can't do anything to support the prison administration's lies that we're just animals without morals or conscience, and if anything is done to that woman, we will lose everything we have fought for. Don't worry, I'll talk to him. Rico reached out to touch my arm. Back in the control booth, I picked up a pen and began preparing a list of things that needed to be done. I was busy writing when a young Khan walked into the booth. Excuse me. Got a present for you, man. He handed me a Rolodex card and left. It was my psychological profile as compiled by the Department of Corrections. According to them, I was a sadistic 
sociopathic, intellectual. <laughs> the incongruity of their classification made me laugh out loud until I saw the small photo attached to the upper left corner of the card. The photo was of a young kid sporting long, dark hair and an innocent, wide-eyed expression. My picture, taken when I first came to prison, using my knife blade as a mirror, I compared my current appearance to the photo. The kid's innocent expression had been replaced by the scowling countenance of an aged cynic. Alongside my face ran a three-inch long scar, a reminder of a close call with a knife's cutting edge. My once aquiline nose was now bent and covered with scar tissue. And magically, my eyes had come closer together and were mere slits with thick, almost serpentine lids, not so easily seen were the scars on my soul. Once, I could never have taken another's life, but prison had changed that. Not only had I killed, I could do so, with no more thought about it than if I was squashing a cockroach. Perhaps, I reasoned, their classification was correct, and I was everything they made out to be, for I was a product of the prison system. It had taught me. It had changed me. Seeing my fellow prisoners gathering on the unit's floor, I went out to speak to them. It was time for me to go to work and do what my fellow prisoners had entrusted me to do. From the protests I'd been involved in at the penitentiary and from the Attica and New Mexico riots, I knew I would have to be careful in dealing with the authorities. They would make no concessions willingly, and many of us would die if I made a mistake. Although we can make these people agree to any number of demands, I told the men before me, none of those demands will mean anything after this is over because we have hostages and they will say they only agreed because they had no choice. For this reason, I say that we set out a list of changes that need to be made, knowing that few of them will be set into policy, but we also expose all that has been done to us. We make certain that the press fully covers this so that the public will be made aware of why this came about and what the Department of Corrections has been doing. Only public scrutiny will make the Department of Corrections change their policies. That, I think, is the only thing we can accomplish. I asked everyone to write down their gripes against the administration and their suggestions for improvement. After all the statements were gathered up, the squad leaders and I composed a dispatch for the press that was a composite of each man's thoughts. The statements told a story of the most brutal abuse. They told of being beaten without just cause, of being strapped to steel beds with chains, not for days or hours, but weeks. They told of the Nottoway officers coming into the prison without badges or name tags, and under the guise of a search, subjecting people to the most horrendous abuse, until even their humanity was in threat of being lost. The statements were a cry, not from their heads nor hearts, but from their souls. Ultimately, 
we got what we had set out to get. The takeover was broadcast worldwide, yet no one heard what we said. In the aftermath of the riot, many people in the Department of Corrections, including the director, were blamed and dismissed from their positions. But nothing was corrected. After a while, it was all forgotten like a bad dream, and no one heard the cry. I'm stealing some water before I run off. The next story by Judy Norton won first prize for fiction in 1991. And just about that time, the author was released from prison. And uh, we hadn't really known what had happened to her until about 48 hours ago. And we now hear that she's still doing very well and is working on a book. Reading Norton number 59900 is co-chair of the Prison Writing Committee, poet, fiction writer, memoirist, and reader extraordinaire, Hetty Jones. I'll get the water first. <laughs> Attention on the yard. Attention on the yard. Norton, 59900, report to the captain's office immediately. The public address speakers boom around the yard, boomerang between the buildings and my ears again and again. At once, I am approached from every direction by fellow inmates asking, Jude, what's going on? Who the fuck knows? My voice is sure and steady, and that pleases me. I can feel my face arranging itself into a mask of haughty insolence. But my guts twist and grumble and roil. My heart is beating much too fast. And I am grateful for the first time ever that is so goddamn hot in Phoenix. Everyone glistens with a fine film of perspiration. Perhaps no one will notice that I smell of fear. The walk across the yard is a long one made longer by my determination to stroll casually under the scrutiny of a hundred watching eyes. I knock purposefully at the polished wooden door with a brass plate. Captain, it says in big carved block letters. Fuck you, I mouth silently. After just enough time has elapsed to make me feel insignificant and small, the door is opened by a fat, oily sergeant. She is damp and rumpled in spite of the cool, air-conditioned comfort of the room. Having not been invited to sit, 
I am still standing near the door feeling awkward and displaced when the phone rings. She picks it up, says, yeah, and after a moment jerks her head in the direction of the door through which I have just come. Go back outside for a minute if you don't mind, she says. Fleetingly, I wonder what she would say if I responded, oh, but I do mind. I mind very much. In fact, it's hotter than the devil's dick out there, you see, and I so much prefer it inside. What I actually say, though, is, oh, sure, no problem, and I'm mortified to find myself blushing. Once outside, it occurs to me that if this was sly psychological weaponry designed to unseat and disadvantage me, it is quite effective. I feel humiliated and disgraced in a way I cannot identify. At last, the door opens, and this time I get a nod from the sergeant to proceed into the next room where sits the captain, enthroned behind a gleaming expanse of mahogany desk. He is leaning back in a maroon leather swivel chair, rolling a gold cross pen between his palms, a black giant, all teeth and long-fingered hands, and military creases. He motions me to a small chair, carefully chosen and placed, so that I am directly in front of him and several inches lower. I feel like a beggar, prostrate at the foot of the king. I am determined that he should not know this. I meet his gaze with a cool look of studied dignity. The chair creaks as he leans forward and picks up a piece of paper, pretends to study it. Without looking at me, he says, Norton, I called you in to talk to you about your son's attitude. Pronouncing all three syllables as though to a slow child. My son's attitude, I repeat, feeling exquisitely stupid. The captain closes his eyes and leans back again. The gold pen clicks annoyingly against his rings. Your son, Adam, he begins with an air of great forbearance, seems to cause a problem every time he comes to visit you. My officers tell me that he is rude and disrespectful, a troublemaker. He opens his eyes and looks at me expectantly. I am dismayed to notice that my mouth is agape. A troublemaker, sir, I say, realizing with no small degree of consternation that thus far I have only managed to echo what has been said to me. Up. Apparently, he replies, your son Adam insists upon knowing the reason for every rule and regulation the Department of Corrections imposes. He disrupts my officers in the performance of their duties. I feel the first stirrings of anger. The visitation officer's duties consist of sitting in a cool, dark room with a bank of closed-circuit TV screens looking out onto the baked parking lot where a line of parched visitors waits. The most arduous task they will perform all day in the fulfillment of their duties is bending over to inspect my vagina for a strip search at visit's end. 
I fail to comprehend how my son's questions interfere, and I say so. From the captain's response, it is obvious that he, too, is becoming annoyed. It is not your place, Norton, to determine whether or not the officer's duties are being interfered with. It is your place to ensure that your visitors comply with procedure. What procedure, sir, says that my boy can't ask questions? A little voice inside my head says, oh boy, now you've done it, you smart ass. And the voice is surely smarter than I, for the captain stands up so fast he nearly topples his chair. His breath is coming fast and his eyes blaze. As quickly as he is losing his calm, I am gaining mine. I stand also and face him squarely and unblinkingly, an intrepid lioness defending her cub. It is a sensation that will not last. Sit, he commands. I sit. A moment later, he sits, crossing one elegantly trousered leg over the other. Tell me, he says congenially, what happened in the blue jeans incident two weeks ago? What happened, sir, I begin reasonably, is that my son came to visit me wearing a pair of gray dockers, you know, men's casual pants. And he was told that he could not see me because he was not in compliance with the dress code that specifies no blue jeans. He was understandably upset and asked that a higher authority be consulted. And were they? Yes, sir. The lieutenant ultimately allowed him in. So he was admitted, the captain says, in a tone implying that after all, the whole point is moot and why ever in the world am I so agitated? Warming to my subject and not liking one bit the look of smug self-satisfaction on his face, I throw caution to the winds, full speed ahead. All pretense of civility leaves me. My instinct for self-preservation is gone. Oh, he was admitted all right, I say. The words rush from me, unstoppable. He was admitted, sir, 20 whole minutes before the end of visitation. After taking a filthy, stinking city bus all the way from Tempe and being allowed to stand in the blazing sun for three and a half hours without a square inch of shade or so much as an offer of a drink of water, he was admitted after he begged, pleaded, cajoled, and tried to reason with every no-nothing brown shirt in this whole sorry place. He was admitted after repeatedly pointing out that his gray, slash-pocketed, cuffed, pleated, and creased 100% cotton slash were, in fact, neither blue nor jeans. He was admitted after being called immature, impatient, juvenile, and demanding, after being threatened with dismissal from the premises, after being subject to an outrageously erroneous judgment call on his goddamn pants, sir. Disrespectful, oh, I hope so. With all due respect to you, sir, I hope to Christ he was disrespectful. I'm shaking with rage. I am remembering my fair-skinned boy's sunburned face. I am remembering the awful look in his sky-colored eyes, that bright liquidity that tells of a boy perched on the brink of manhood, trying not to cry. 
I am remembering my own inability to explain, to soothe, to mend as mothers do, as they must, for if not they, who? It is an omission of some seriousness that I did not notice earlier the twin spots of color that had crept to the captain's cheekbones. On his ebony skin, they are the color of dried blood. There is a vein pulsing at his left temple. Norton, he says slowly. It is my feeling that for the continued secure operation of this institution, it will be necessary to discontinue your son's visit until further notice. Perhaps he only needs time. An attitude adjustment, period. He smiles. My heart lurches and I feel the color staining my own cheeks even as it leaves his. Sir, I say, hating the quavering, desperate sound of my voice, Surely you're not saying he can't come to see me anymore. Having regained his equilibrium, the captain sits up straighter. That is precisely what I am saying, Norton. I am consumed by impotent rage. I wrestle with a crushing and mighty urge to rise and beat that superior face of his into a bleeding pulp of unrecognizable jutting bones and torn flesh. I sit for a moment, gripping the chair bottom. Then I push the chair back gently, like a woman preparing to excuse herself from the dinner table, and say softly, may I leave, sir? Certainly, replies the captain, ever the gracious host. He smiles at me. I do not return his smile. I hold my head high as I close the big door quietly, and slip unnoticed around the corner of the building. I lean against the sun-baked wall. Then, my knees suddenly and utterly incapable of supporting me, I slide bonelessly down, my teeth clenched, my lips parted and turned downward. From them comes an awful keening sound I do not recognize. My eyes sting with the threat of unwelcome tears. I beg them silently not to betray me, but they do, traitorous things, and a great wash pours unchecked down my cheeks. I am dimly aware that I am crying in the broken-hearted way of a small child, a sort of hitching and breathless, uh, 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 complete with snot running into my mouth. Finally, I can no longer hear the sound of my own weeping. I feel the sun begin to evaporate the tears. I spit on my fingertips and scrub away the trails they left, wipe my nose on my sleeve, and stand up, straight, tall, shoulders back, chin up. I put my dark glasses on my face and the mantle of hard-ass prisoner on my soul. I saunter nonchalantly onto the yard. An acquaintance approaches me and asks in an excited whisper, So, what happened? What's up? She is immediately joined by a second and a third and a fourth, all questioning. I am comfortable now. This is where I know exactly what is expected of me, precisely how to behave, what to do and say. 
I shove both hands jointly into the hip pockets of my Levi's. Fuck him, I say with contempt. He can't touch this. And we all laugh. Thank you. Next, we have a poem from Sing Sing. Ignorance is no excuse for the law by Alejo Rodriguez. Um, an honorable mention for poetry in 1998. Please welcome back the incomparable Paul Marshall. From the cell 10 feet across from mine, he told how he used to play chicken for money. He played in bars where no other kid his age was allowed to go, but he went. And the scars of cigar burns between his knuckles testified that he won more money than he lost. Ever smell burning skin, he would ask? It's enough to make you sick. And his stories were never tired, and I was never tired of hearing them. After all, living on death row, it's only fitting to allow a man to tell the story that wasn't allowed by law to be told in court. Where the formalities were too complex for that 16-year-old boy to comprehend. And it seems the law really didn't understand him either. But one thing was for sure, he wasn't going to cry. His father taught him that. His mother cried for him, though, cried all the tears that were held back, watching him grow, watching his father make a man of him a man, before the child was able to be a boy. Mom never really understood, he told me. You know, male bonding, the rights to passage, to become a real man. And every part of that real man's bleeding heart was on death row, spilling its guts, but still holding on to proud memories of how he threw up on his first beer. He was nine, and it was his father who made him drink it. That'll make a man of you, boy. And how, when he was seven, his father made him stay and fight, or you'll get a whooping when you get home, Dad said. It didn't matter that the other kid was twice his age and size. You never run from a fight, boy. And when he got home, he still got a whooping anyway because he lost. But by the time he was 14, grown men were self-conscious being in his presence. I don't want to make it sound as though the old man was a drill sergeant, he told me. We used to do regular father and son shit, too. Took him to baseball games and got him his first mini bike. And they used to go camping a lot, too. But why did Dad always forget his sleeping bag, he would ask. And why did he have to share mine? His hands the only visible part of him through the porthole of the cell door where they serve our food, 
would pound the air and move with his words as though they were the ones doing the talking. But the scars of melted skin made it look like his knuckles were crying every time the talking stopped. Then he would excuse himself because he had to finish cleaning his cell, a ritual he performed meticulously three times a day as though it were an act of repentance. Nobody ever taught me how to pray, he said. One time I got down on my knees and just sat there, but I didn't know what else to do. I never seen them do anything else in the movies. So finally, when they did come for him, he just asked the priest, the preacher, to just clean him afterwards in case he shit on himself. But he assured the preacher that I'm going to try my best to hold it all right. And then trying his best to wipe his eyes and handcuffs, he walked out of his cell, seeming to be more afraid of having to leave the cell than facing death. Back then, I never really understood his last words to me when he said, I died when I was born, but now I'm next. Recipe for Prison Pruno by Jarvis Masters, Jamal, California, was prize winner in 1992. Again, Jack Aguero. Uh, Prison Pruno, I believe, is uh, an expression for homemade booze. Wine. Well, I was on the right track anyway. Thank you. Recipe for Prison Pruno by Jarvis Masters. Take 10 peeled oranges. Jarvis Masters, it is the judgment and sentence of this court. One eight-ounce bowl of fruit cocktail that the charged information was true. Squeeze the fruit into a small plastic bag. And the jury having previously on set date and put the juice along with the mash inside, found that the penalty shall be death. Add 16 ounces of water and seal the bag tightly. And this court having on August 20th, 1991, Place the bag in your sink, denied your motion for a new trial, and heat it with hot running water for 15 minutes. It is the order of this court that you suffer death. Wrap towels around the bag to keep it warm for fermentation. Said penalty to be inflicted within the walls of San Quentin. Stash the bag in your cell undisturbed for 48 hours at which place you shall be put to death when the time has elapsed. In the manner prescribed by law, add 40 to 60 cubes of sugar. The date later to be fixed by the court in warrant of execution, 
six teaspoons of ketchup. You are remanded to the custody of the warden of San Quentin. Then heat again for 30 minutes. To be held by him pending final, secure the bag as done before. Determination of your appeal. Then stash the bag undisturbed again for 72 hours. It is so ordered. Reheat daily for 15 minutes. In witness thereof, after 72 hours, I have hereon set my hand as judge of the superior court with a spoon, skim off the mash. And I have caused the seal of this court to be affixed thereto. Pour the remaining portion into two 16-ounce cups. May God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> what a piece of work. We're going to conclude our program tonight with two extraordinary pieces. First, Directed by Leslie Scammell and performed by Wayne Melius, both of the After Studio MFA program at the New School, an excerpt from a play, Listen to the River by David Wood, Bowling Green, Florida. Immediately following the play, we'll hear an excerpt from Walker's Requiem by Anthony Ross, San Quentin, read by Cornelius Eady. Thank you. Truman once said, if you can't convince him, confuse him. I know. It's written on the wall of my cell. Give him hell, Harry. But Harry, you were before my time. But I remember John Kennedy dying. Robert Kennedy shot, Martin Luther King shot, John Lennon shot. Disco, punk rock, reggae, MTV, President Clinton, President Hillary Clinton, the Gulf War. Woodstock 2 brought to you by Pepsi-Cola. O.J. Simpson. But Harry, you were before my time. 
history. What was it Napoleon Bonaparte once said? History is nothing but a fable agreed upon. He was before my time too. His writings on my walls and above my door, it says, listen to the river. Wasn't there doors somewhere that said, abandon hope, all ye who enter? Maybe I'll write that up there someday. When I was a kid, I used to pick fleas off of the belly of my dog. Try to squish them between my fingers, you couldn't do it. <laughs> They're flat little critters. You, you could roll around their tiny little bodies and squish them, but you couldn't crush them. I guess I'm a flea. I'm not dead yet. Gonna be bringing breakfast in one hour. It's nearly 5 a.m. When I was 12 years old, me and two friends used to steal Coca Cola bottles, cases of them for the 10 cent deposits. <laughs> Can you believe that? Anyhow, all we have to do is carry these bottles from a fenced-in area behind this store about 100 yards away behind these trees and bushes. It's nighttime. The lock on the fence gate is busted. I did it. And we're carrying these cases. When I look up and I see George and Paul drop their, their bottles and run, I think they're nuts. Until I look up and I see these blue and red flashing lights coming off the trees. I stop and I turn around and I see this cop car behind me. There's nothing I could do. I put the bottles down. And they threw me in the back of this car. There I am, a 12-year-old kid handcuffed in the back of a cop car. I snitched out my two friends. They always said someday that I'd do it. And I always said that I wouldn't. But in the end, I did. There's a saying on my wall. It says when you betray somebody else, you betray yourself. Shit. Nearly breakfast time.
This is Walker's Requiem. And um, this is the story so far. Well, the story before we enter a story. After six years on death row, Nat Walker is to be executed tonight. Reluctantly, he visits with the prison chaplain, the psychiatrist, and finally his attorney, who tells him about the supportive demonstrators outside the prison and the legal strategies he continues to pursue. He remains optimistic about a stay of execution, but Nat knows better. They've just said goodbye, and this excerpt begins. One last thing you need to know is there's a person mentioned whose name is Ford. He is the um, prison guard. When I got back to my cell, it was a little after four. The phone had been installed right outside, a direct link to my lawyer for good news or bad. I had Ford get some more orange juice brought up. They even sent ice with it. I kicked back on the bunk and did some more reading, a novel by Terry McMillan called Disappearing Acts. It was pretty good, but I knew I wasn't going to finish it, so I turned to the final pages to see how things turned out for Franklin and Zora. Zora reminded me of someone I had once loved, but things have turned out much different for us. It was almost six when Ford called to me. His question hit me like a ton of bricks, and at first my mind couldn't completely compute the reality of it. I was stunned by its sheer finality, even though I knew they would ask me. Walker, the ward wants to know what you'd like for your last meal. My mind locked on the question as the concept looms in my head like a giant neon sign, pushing all other thoughts to the side until it alone remained. Last meal, I thought. I said it again, over and over. It sounded too unnatural. Hell, just how in the fuck was I supposed to enjoy something like that? My stomach did some gymnastics and I knew there was no way I was going to be able to eat anything, much less enjoy it. Anyway, the very thought of me crapping on myself while choking to death was enough to deter me from eating. When they pulled me out of the chamber, my drawers are going to be clean. Fuck that man. I don't want nothing, I said. I told Ford, you're not hungry? Hell no. Sure? Absolutely. I don't want shit. I could imagine the warden's expression. He'll probably try to send that shrink over here. Man, what an asshole. But I doubt if old Frankenstein wanted to see me again. I got off the bunk and began pacing. I also started singing every song I knew in my mind. But after a while, I would sing the first verse, then nothing. Hum a few notes, then nothing. It was like the words were just vanishing from my memory. I started getting verses mixed up until songs became intertwined. I finally gave up altogether. What time you got, Ford? 7.35. I need to use a pencil and paper. No problem. He went in his desk and got out some sheets of paper and a small pencil that had been broken in half for my supposed safety. 
I rolled my mattress back so I could see the flat steel bunk. I could use the flat steel bunk as a table. I was going to write one last letter, but found myself just sitting there, holding a pencil, staring at the paper, not sure of what to write, what to say. After about an hour or so of scribbling on several sheets of paper and crumpling them up and tossing them into the toilet, I finally wrote a poem. The kind only a desperate man could write. Imagine seeing the flash of a camera, and in that same instant, you witness the most violent and brutal scene of your life. Imagine seeing a contorted face, broken limbs, blood flowing. Imagine the terrified screams, the unbearable pain, the pleas for help, the tears. Imagine death as you fall to your knees, embracing a dying body, your body. Imagine that last look, that last word, that last touch, that last breath. Imagine life. The day after, the week after, the year after, the year after. Imagine seeing that camera flash in your sleep and your waking moments over and over, every second, every minute, every hour in your mind. Imagine seeing the end, your end, every day until you die. Imagine. It was all I had left in me, all I felt. I got an envelope from Ford and addressed it to my lawyer. Make sure he gets this after, you know, when things are over, I said. I rolled the mattress back out and lay down with a book in my hand, but I never opened it. Then I began to let go of everything, feelings, memories, and the small fraction of hope I had quietly clung to until all that was left was emptiness. Some time later, the phone in front of my cell rang. At first, I just stared at it, uncertain of what to do. Answer it, Ford said enthusiastically. I gingerly reached through the bars and picked it up. Yeah, I whispered. That? It was my lawyer. His voice sounded exhausted and drained. Yeah, I whispered again. Nat, the courts turned us down, but I put the phone down. There was nothing else to say, nothing else to hear. What time you got, Ford? 11.05. Just then, the phone on his desk rang. The sudden change of his expression told me everything. Walker, yeah, I know. They were on their way to get me. This was it. Time to face the matador. You want some more orange juice or something, Walker? I just looked at him. I knew he was trying to break the overwhelming sense of dread that had started to condense like storm clouds around us. I sat up and looked down at my feet. I didn't recognize them. They seemed like independent machines separate from my body. And they would, of their own volition, 
lead me right to the gas chamber. I put my shoes on and then went to the sink and splashed some cold water on my face. I took a piss, washed my hands, combed my hair. But as I was combing it, I was struck by the realization that everything I was now doing would be my last time doing it. I suddenly felt completely alone. My heart started to thump somewhere in my throat. I leaned against the sink for a moment. I didn't want my legs to start act acting like I had just been hit by Mike Tyson right when they came for me. Walker, it's time to go. I turned around. The warden and two guards were waiting like stone sentinels. I walked over to the bars, consciously controlling each step. One of the guards put the cups on through the tray slot. Ford keyed open the gate, and as I stepped out, I nodded my head to him slightly. He nodded back. I walked slowly at first, my breath hard. I could feel the rise and fall of my chest, and the sound of my breath echoed in my head like giant waves. When we got to the door, Ford already had it open. I turned to the warden. Do me a favor, warden. What is it, he asked, bewildered. Well, do you think we could make this long walk short? How, he said, looking even more confused. By running, I said, and burst out laughing. They all looked at me like I had just snapped, Ford included. They stood there, uncertain of what to do next. Oh, come on, guys, it's a joke, I said. I'm just trying to ease the gloom. Hell, the way you dudes look, a person would think you're the ones about to get X'd out. Walker, how can you joke at a time like this? Yeah, you're right, Warden. So when do you think would be a, a good time for me to joke? Then, looking him straight in the eye, I asked him seriously, Warden, when was the last time you've been to a circus? But I didn't give him time to answer. Let's go, I said. There's one waiting for us. We walked out of a long, narrow hallway with an elevator at the end. The warden walked alongside me as the two guards plotted zombie fashion behind us. I was half expecting one of them to yell, dead man walking, as we headed for the elevator. The sound of our shoes hitting the concrete floor reverberated off the walls, making it sound as if someone else was walking alongside us in another dimension. And I got the strangest feeling of deja vu. When we reached the elevator, the feeling was gone, but I still couldn't shake the sense that I had done all of this before. The warren stuck a key into the slot where the button should have been, turned it. It took a few seconds for the door to open, and I could hear the elevator lumbering toward the top. The door opened suddenly with a swoosh, and we all stepped in. The guards positioned themselves behind me while the warden remained at my side. They had all been rehearsed the parts they would play. I imagined them practicing it, and I wondered who they got to play me. I bet they even, have him, they even had him resist, put up some kind of struggle, their way of preparing for anything. I had never heard of anyone all out kicking and biting his way to the execution, but I suppose it may have happened. It reminded me of a Star Trek episode I'd seen, 
where these machines called a Borg are bent on destroying mankind. No matter how much Captain Picard tried to reason with them, all they said was, resistance is futile, over and over, as they brought humanity closer to extinction. Absoluteness, I thought. The elevator dropped a bit before descending, and the slight pull of gravity tugged at my nuts and stomach as we began to go down. The short ride made me feel a little queasy, and I was thankful I had opt not to eat anything. It would have been all over the elevator floor. The elevator stopped, and the door whooshed open. We stepped into a smaller hallway and walked towards a large green steel door. I thought I could hear a murmur of voices on the other side, and I imagined rows of people drinking soda, eating popcorn, chanting, kill him, kill him, kill him. The warden pressed a button, and a few seconds later, the door popped open. As we walked in, my entire body grew hot, and the palms of my head started to sweat. The first thing I saw was the gas chamber. It stood waiting ominously, only a few feet in front of us. There was nothing else in the room. Everything became dreamlike, and every second was an eternity. My mind went numb, my throat bone dry. This was the first real look at the chamber. I stood there, my eyes transfixed on the cylindrical shape and the chair sitting directly in the middle. The feeling of deja vu hit me again, this time much stronger. Now don't get the wrong impression. I didn't all of a sudden get religion. But when dying is the central theme of your life, your perspective, your perspective can change. I don't think it's an issue of whether we're afraid of dying. It's more like being afraid of not existing. You know what I mean? I guess that's why people tend to believe in things like reincarnation, heaven, and trans, uh, transmigration, because these things offer a sense of continuity or immortality. Hey, life after death sure beats ashes to ashes. Let's go, Walker, the warden said, taking hold of my arm. We walked to the door of the chamber. One of the guards pulled open the door, and as I stepped in, the air was still and oppressive. I swear I could sense the men who had gone before me. I could feel them still in that room. If my mind was playing a trick on me, it was a damn good one. You have to sit down, Walker, the warden said, still holding my arm like I was in the last images of life. They darted around the chamber, sinking anything, everything. The cubicle was spotless, as, as, as almost as if all traces of reality itself had been vacuumed out. It was the only place I had ever been inside prison when there was, where there was absolutely no graffiti. No Kilroy was here, no Jesus loves you, no gang grinding, not so much as a scratch. I guess anyone coming in here ain't in a position to do nothing but die. And the only thing that will ever deface these walls will be the souls of dead men. The warden double-checked the straps after the guards had finished. Then, in a well-practiced monotone, he asked, do you have any last words, Walker? Ignoring his question, I swallowed the large lump that had formed in my throat and stared straight ahead at the dark glass window in front of me. I knew there would be people sitting on the other side, waiting to watch my death. Well, enjoy the show, folks, I said to myself. The warden asked me again if I had any last words. 
I said nothing, still staring at the window. Then he proceeded to tell me in the same flat voice how the sentence of death was being carried out by order of the court. When he had finished, he and the two guards left without looking back. I heard the latch locking the door, and except for my breathing, there was absolute silence. I pulled against the straps. Nothing. I knew it was useless at this point, but still. I could feel my muscles tightening as my pulse vibrated through my entire body. In eternity seemed to pass as I sat there, waiting for something to happen. I kept thinking that they were going to come through that door at any second. My eyes were frantically searching the window for any movement. Finally, I closed them and let my head fall back. I felt some sweat or a tear rolling down my cheek. I opened my eyes just in time to catch it falling from my face, and as I watched it fall in slow motion, I suddenly tasted something bitter and acrid in my mouth, and my lungs seemed to ignite into flames without even thinking about it. I quickly held my breath, and at that very moment, I knew that once I let it go, it would be all over. With each second, the pain in my chest grew more unbearable. Inside, I was on fire. I began spinning and tumbling, my head falling backward and forward. I could feel the explosion in my chest heaving upward as the pain began to, began to burst into a billion pieces of light. And then I was falling, falling toward the sky, higher and higher, until I could no longer see the clouds, until darkness began to engulf me. It was almost over. I'm on that. Warp speed, man. Yeah, I thought. I do have something to say. Then I felt the rush of warm wind. And I breathed out. On behalf of the Prison Writing Committee, I want to thank you again for coming. I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce the members of the Prison Writing Committee who worked very hard during the year. Please stand up, those of you who are here. Now everyone, please join us for a reception right outside, and there are books for sale on the table over here. Thank you again for coming. Good night.